financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year. And then the inflation data came out, higher than expected. Friends, this isn't going away. It can't. The U.S. is $34 trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher. So you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation, and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They'll help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold, and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. Text STRANGE to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation with gold. Text STRANGE to 989898 now. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG-13. The highly anticipated second season of the hit podcast Proof is finally here. Proof is an investigative true crime podcast co-hosted by Susan Simpson of Undisclosed and Jacinda Davis of Evil Lives Here. Proof made headlines for its first season in 2022 after proving the innocence of two Georgia men serving life sentences for murdering their friend Brian Bowling when they were just 17 years old. 25 years later, on December 8, 2022, both men were finally freed based on evidence unearthed by Proof. In the second season of Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, Susan and Jacinda are on the case again, this time traveling the streets of Manteca, California, to uncover who really murdered 18-year-old Rene Ramos. On June the 5th, 2000, Ramos's body was found buried under a pile of debris inside the shell of a new Home Depot building. Despite tips hinting at alternate suspects, tips that were ignored until now, Renee's boyfriend, 18-year-old skateboarder Jake Silva, and Ty Lopez, the 33-year-old uncle of one of Jake's close friends, were arrested and convicted of her murder. Fans of true crime and investigative series won't want to miss this riveting new season. Follow the case as Susan and Jacinda uncover long-overlooked evidence about what really happened to Renee by listening to Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, wherever you get your podcasts. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Hey, welcome to Plus Episode 24 of Conspiracy Unlimited for premium subscribers. And thanks for your ongoing support. And I hope you're enjoying these bonus commercial-free episodes. In his book, It's Not Aliens, Worse, It's Us, self-experimenter and field researcher of ancient technologies and lost history, Jared Murphy lays out the evidence from historical record, legends, and myths that are shouting it wasn't aliens, that the advanced technologies are echoes of a human society we don't have a written record of. He writes that we have the remnants of their buildings, genes, and the sciences that point to a highly advanced human race that survived multiple catastrophes and to this day may live among us. 
human bones have been found back millions of years alongside the Homo erectus and other primitive humans. Many revelations of high technology have been uncovered by independent researchers all over the world. Anomalies in the historical record, out-of-place, out-of-time artifacts are labeled as mysteries or one-offs, yet show signs of advanced science and intelligence. Ancient maps showing lands that were not supposed to have been known, let alone covered deep in ice for thousands of years before human civilization. The case is evaporating of the timeline given for modern man, being here for only three or four hundred thousand years. Jared Murphy has traveled the world searching for evidence of advanced ancestors and high technology. Hey Jared, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. So let's talk about what led you to conclude that the pilots of these unidentified aerial phenomenon aren't extraterrestrials, they're basically our ancestors. Where do we begin this journey? When did it start for you? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, that's like probably the best first question to start exactly at this conclusion because it made me sick. I actually thought about it and I'm like, oh, this is horrible for a lot of reasons. And what got me started originally was I've had a lifelong interest in history. And uh, when I was young, I wanted to find what Indiana Jones found. I wanted to find the golden monkey statues and the mummies. I wanted to find King Tut's tomb. I wanted to keep going down that road. And when I would hear about Megalus and Stonehenge and all I could picture is people in the Natural History Museum banging rocks together and starting fires. And and I'm like, oh, who cares about ancient megalithic stuff? It's all primitive. That was my original perspective. And I had delved into some other historical fiction. And at the same time, I also have had a fascination with uh, computing. I was that generation that was learning how to, they didn't know what to teach kids because computers were brand new. So they taught us how to program. And I've always had an interest in you know, the asthma of George Jetson, we're going to have flying cars, by the, of course, by the time I'm as old as I am. But what happened was I was going to write a fictional story about governments reanimating mummies that were the oldest on Earth and that they were going to get their kind of lopsided, kind of disjointed memories back together so that they could recall ancient high technology that they would then go and recover. And that was the premise for my fictional book. And... Well, I spent, you know, day one, day two, and a, somewhere between day two and three, I end up here learning about this man named Colonel Percy Fawcett, who, of course, was played by Brad Pitt a few years ago in a movie that was about uh, Colonel. And this is not ruining it for anyone, because even if you haven't seen the movie, Colonel Percy Fawcett had done a lot of work for the British government surveying the Amazon basin and had been in Brazil and had found pottery shards and swore he saw what he's what the movie says is the lost city of Z. And so I see a documentary three days into research, which is going to turn into four years of work. And they say, because I'm interested in the practice, they're 9000. They're at least 9000 year old mummies of these elongated skull alien looking people that are naturally born. And I, I'm I come across this lost city of Z, not the movie, but this documentary about how they're going to go see the last city that he was seen at. And the first thing they do is they stop at a ditch that is 12 feet tall 
And they go, hey, I just want to show you this before we get to the city. It's called Terra Preta. This archaeologist brings in the camera crew and the TV guy who's dressed in an Indiana Jones hat and says, well, this is Terra Preta. Soil scientists have been looking at it for 100 years. It's an engineered soil that's the richest growing soil on Earth. And, well, we don't know how to make it. It's uh, – well, it's all over here, and we think it's at least the size right now, an area about double the size of Spain or Great Britain. And, well, that's interesting. Let's move on and find where Colonel Percy Fawcett disappeared. And I'm like, hold on. Yes. <laughs> I, I'm trying to find – right? Yeah. yeah. I, 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 hold the presses. He buried the lead. <laughs> uh, and, and and so many things in history and having you know investigative mind here. And I'm, I'm like, okay, I'm trying to write a story – I'm into spintronics and quantum computing, and I'm I'm trying to write a story about uh, genetic memory. I've been following a lot of the information on that and all these things that they have been discovering, collective human consciousness. I mean, I was fascinated. Why are there pyramids? Well, can you believe that one of the earliest – it's easier to believe that it's either aliens or we came up with the 100th monkey theory in the 60s. And the idea was that why do the monkeys on Madagascar use a tool to get ants out of an anthill just like the monkeys use tools on mainland Africa? How could they possibly know how to do that? And they go, well – Here's a theory. This is how there's pyramids simultaneously all over the earth. It's not because there was a global human society and forget about marine archaeology where there's other mysterious things. But the hundredth monkey theory was an idea to explain on quantum consciousness, collective human consciousness that simultaneously everyone just said, I feel like building a pyramid. And that was an easier jump than it was to say humans did it, that we had a global society that we have no record of. And so here, here's this story of this engineered soil. I'm like, okay, well, that sounds fascinating. So I start looking it up. And before long, I find that Terra Preta also has other sister soils that are also engineered. And there's literally a black market for it in Ukraine. And they're called Chernozems. And they're all over Russia. They're all over Europe. They're all over America. What, they're what all is over an Canada. What is an engineered soil exactly? So we call them now, they, they make them now, and they want to say that they're similar, but they're not. But they call them biochars. And so it's exactly what it sounds like. You take different biological agents and you basically turn them into kind of coal. So, for instance, say you and I, um, we were going to farm apples or uh, wheat. You would have a different type of biochar commercially made right now. That would be more lenient and suited for growing wheat or growing the apples. And it's another additive that they're using with uh, soil. But the, now I had gone paleo and not as a diet, but as a lifestyle. I'm exper I always, I, I'm a climber. I experiment with movement. And I kind of went obsessively from Mark Sisson's The Primal Blueprint and just kept moving into the paleo world and learning about biochemistry and, and how does the human body work. And early on, uh, as I learned about aeroponics, which was NASA's solution for not bringing soil and too much water into space to go to Mars, and that was in the 70s, they figured out that you could atomize water and provide a nutrient-rich base directly to roots and grow hundreds or thousands of plants with a lot less water and a lot of nutrients. And what I had learned was early on that Terra Preta had already been available on the black market from Brazil. It was already something that if you were in the no-no that you could buy. And the reason it was such a huge deal 
is that when we do modern farming, and, and I'm in the Midwest in the in the Great Plains where there's a lot of farming. Uh, half my family were farmers uh, uh, in history, and that what the, the the issue is, we use 16 of what really could be 56, some arguably to 90 different uh, minerals and ingredients that could make up soil. And Terra Preta was already available, not so legally, to because it didn't just have 20 or 30. It, it, the ancient engineered soil isn't like our modern biochars, which is a mix of woods. Uh, basically, it's a complex compost but it's not as simple as you throwing everything to rot in the in the garden and saying, well, you know, this is a good, this is an engineered mix. It's it's more complicated than that. So modern soil scientists, there's a professor out of Kansas that's been looking at this, and one of the most interesting. So here's the list of weird, interesting properties. One, way more nutrients than anything you could find in in our modern biochars or modern when you uh, change and rotate a crop when you add. Uh, you know, uh, magnesium and nitrates and whatever back into the soil. We only do about 16. But here's a soil that's truly ancient. It's been tested. To, some of it's been tested easily over 7,000 years. And that's only, see, it's kind of a hot button. I guess that's a different point. Uh, we'll stick with the fact that it self-replicates. That's one of the things being studied in Kansas right now is it seems to self-generate. It doesn't lose its nutrient richness. It has lots of minerals in it that you do not get in other soils. And so by nature, when you – like most of the commercially – here's one example of commercial available tomatoes. When you go to a store and you see a big red tomato, we have large corporations now that engineer food and they make – very pretty giant red tomatoes. But everyone, most everyone, no matter where you are, even in Canada, uh, because – and I say that because we are kind of sister areas as far as Minnesota has a very close relationship with Canada. And and as far as the farming goes, we have, you know, we have great soil. And when you grow your own tomatoes, they always taste better. Well, why is that? Well, most of the tomatoes in, in America are grown commercially in Florida. How much nutrients do you think are in sand? And they engineer them to look like beautiful tomatoes, but I had gone paleo, and part of being paleo was how many complex nutrients and vitamins and minerals. Just because your stomach's full doesn't mean you've eaten anything that actually feeds and helps with cellular repair, positive gene expression. These are programmable entities, the idea of positive gene expression. That's something that's really come up over the last now decade in, in dialogue. And it's it, it, the simple expression is, you know, good food in, good things out, you know, bad food in, you know, cancer, bad diseases, you know, breakdowns. And so here's the soil along with the idea of aeroponics where you could control in a liquid form all the nutrients or more nutrients than you could get in random soil. Here's a soil that is self-replicating Oh, and here's another quality to it. They found that it it more efficiently filters carbon dioxide. It is piezoelectric, which means it holds current. It can actually act as a – which gets into the polygonal construction. So I'm, it's a giant game of adult archaeological clue is what we're really talking about. Right. And you – yeah. So you I start, mean, the, the, the people that, that, that were responsible for, for producing this – uh, soil. I mean, what kind of 
scientific uh, knowledge would they have had to? Uh, are they dealing with like carbon isotopes and things like that? Or yeah, yeah. So this is what's so interesting about this whole thing. We have what looks like uh, different verticals of science, and we have this Victorian age theory of uh, out of Africa of Darwinism of we we have these very basic theories, but from the minute you look at paleoanthropology taking itself theory seriously, none of the facts that you table, you know, we have out of place, out of time artifacts, we have maps, we have sciences that don't add up. So like the, in the case of the soil, how is it that, I mean, commercial agriculture wants to grow things efficiently, but the nutrient richness I mean, the reason the organic market is so big now is because nutrient richness was never a priority, being organic, not with pesticides. We just think that a lack of something chemical was and, and crop rotation would be enough. But the reality is we know that there's soil depletion, that there's uh, nutrient depletion. But we're talking about a soil that's incredibly nutritious for plants, gives you way more minerals and nutrients and even as a potting soil, if you can just grow some basil or thyme, you're talking about, again, that rich homegrown sort of taste. And you would have to have electron microscopes. You would have to have a, a much higher level of science just to manage a soil that can filter heavy metals, filter carbon dioxide, self-replicate, and, of course, uh, be the most nutritious soil on Earth and it's got piezoelectric qualities and all of it as you're looking at it you're like oh yeah you know if you're gonna feed a lot of people you need soil but then i started thinking about the fact that well we have aeroponics and we also have 3d printers that are printing meat now without killing an animal so how far away are we from a society that perhaps the more interesting qualities is i do think in my research and this is newer in the dialogue I'm having with people, is I do think that our total human population is part of a collective human consciousness, like the 100th monkey theory. But I think um, that the idea that if you, and, and I credit Michael Tellinger with the analogy on this, he said, give everyone an acre. If you took 8 billion people and gave them an acre, they would fit in basically two Texases. Right, right. Or I heard, a, yeah. Right. So so that's incredible, because if you only have uh, that many people, then why would you need so much? What I started finding is, oh, my gosh, there's this engineered soil all over the earth. Well, that doesn't play with the story of humanity. You have nomadic peoples, but oh, we're finding Gobekli Tepe. Oh, there's a city uh, which fascinates me for all the sunken cities. The one that's off the coast of Cuba that was found by gold diggers while well, they were looking for Spanish gold and twenty three hundred feet deep. There is a pyramid-like city that shows the same kind of polygonal construction, essentially, as anything else above land. And this is a city that could not have been above ground. It, it, it had to have been at least fifty-five to 60,000 years ago. And of that, we have this very interesting mainstream knowledge of around 50-plus thousand years ago, uh, Denisovan, Neanderthal, and a, in quotes, mystery 14% human genome all kind of mixed, like they were all survivors of some massive event. And then you look at the weathering. So you combine this, what appears to be a worldwide 
engineered soil connected society start building this foundation of, well, maybe the soil wasn't just engineered for growing. Maybe it was the carbon filtering that, again, maybe they were slightly, they were polluting only because of the vastness of a worldwide population. We have the stone structures left, but we assume that when we look at these megalithic blocks, well, they, they were really good with stones, but well, they, they didn't have metal. Well, that's an assumption because if it's tens of thousands or thousands of years old, the metal would have been readapted and repurposed or, or wood. Or we're looking at these polygonal blocks that end with no lids, not, not, not like where the uh, Inca and the Aztecs you know, made roof lines. But you have like Ollante Tambo, Saxe Waman, uh, uh, many things in all over the world, including uh, Angkor Wat and not the temple. But there's polygonal construction everywhere where uh, perhaps just like you see in modern construction now – they would do the commercial first floor level 20 feet of stone. And then above that, you have a wood building. And if you can manage 1,000 to 3,000 ton stones that are made of very specific qualities, but why? how hard would it be for you to manage trees and then manage the soil? And if you're engineering and have just even the, the planning of managing the soil is fascinating, they would be managing uh, one of the things I do, I include in the book, a map of trees. And I think that they weren't using trees as we think of them now as just random, uh, just, you know, we planted a forest. Well, there were some researchers um, about a year prior to me publishing the book, almost, uh, they came out with, they published a paper about seismic metastructures, which are any component from nano-sized to uh, large that would go under a building in order for it to not be affected by an earthquake. And one of the things that, and I had already pre-written my chapter and they said, it seems to us in their quotes was, well, if we did uh, sifting the soil, like you sift it for baking flour, you know, like you sift flour, if we sift soil, create hollow plug spaces, uh, plant trees in a particular order, um, and then use stone spheres that are found all over the earth, these megalithic stone spheres that are all different sizes. They're as small as golf balls. They're as big as 64 tons that are found. There is a one in Bosnia that was found near the Bosnian Pyramid Project that is a 64-ton estimated stone sphere. And the, the question has been abounding in alternative research for years. They're like, what are these stone spheres? Well, here is published mainstream European scientists talking about, well, we studied three by three foot concrete spheres. We cut them up. We put them together with like kind of uh, metal steel uh, spacers. And we noticed that if you bury them under whole cities, that they act as wave resonators and they cancel earthquakes. And then they further publish and point out that well, we noticed the city of Bologna, Italy, and this made ancient origins news. They, the uh, scientists uh, feel that Bologna, Italy towers created uh, seismic safe zones, like within the within the center of the city, based on the tower sizes that they they muted or resonated and muted either um, hostile waves like an earthquake or it could be from other some catastrophe. And so now we have engineered soil piezoelectric properties, giant stone spheres, 
megalithic polygonal shaped walls that other scientists in South America looked at and collegially said, sure looks like these shaped constructions are able to mute earthquakes. Well, that's just one quality. But now we have this table of facts. We, we, we now, in just a very short amount of time, have tabled piezoelectric, super good growing, but uh, uh, you know, atmosphere filtering and chemical reducing soil that also has a society with giant stone spheres that could possibly act as wave muters or amplifiers, just like, uh, just like in Egypt we have the obelisks that uh, seem to all be at different frequencies. But this is where archaeoacoustics and archaeoastronomy is coming in, uh, nanoarchaeology. There's so many different fields that are finally joining together. And this paradigm and narrative that excludes in paleoanthropology and biology from the very beginning when I went to start this book that you asked about was the Paracas. These are elongated skulled people that are found not just, okay, the practice of Peru or the practice of Peru. And there's lots and lots of these mummies. And some of them even have soft tissue. I was able to speak directly with Nassim Harriman. I remember a couple of years ago when they had done testing. And he's like, Jared, I'm in front of a mummy that's almost 3,000 years old and had soft tissue. But not a single mainstream scientific collegiate institution that has the labs have done this work. Or the question is, have they? And so the same elongated skulled human beings or similar types are found all over the earth. And I think that our story, this narrative of out of Africa first, we're the most advanced as we've ever been, is starting to look sadder and more and more ludicrous. And we can all keep sitting around and saying, uh, okay, uh, maybe the story's off versus boy, what is the science behind these polygonal blocks? What is the what is the actual DNA evidence of these elongated skull, not shaped heads from tribes that we're mimicking, but what are these naturally born uh, shaped head people, long, long skulled people doing here on the planet? Why is it that we have cities off the coast of Cuba? Why do we have, why do we have the, are the stone spheres, what are they cast out of? What are the, we're doing more and more ancient material sciences uh, now that are showing the, this is a cast, this is a geopolymer. And even Dr. Jason, Joseph David Ovitz has done the work and he's the father of geopolymers. And there is some solid evidence that our, it just keeps piling up. And ultimately it leads back to the very first question, which is, uh, is it that we are just as advanced as we are ever or have secret societies and people and have uh, they picked up just like we're picking up in all this information that a very advanced group of humans survived, not one, not two, but even based on human skeletal remains. Do we have millions of years of missing human history? And even the last tens of thousands of years, even the last like 60 to 200,000 years, do we have a missing history that includes a society that was not only capable of engineering that soil, muting earthquakes, sending signals through electrified soil, and managing different types of humanity in a way that we don't currently understand, yet we have zero point turning uh, unidentified objects 
that when people say they've witnessed uh, an alien, well, they're white. They're not from here. They're little short white guys with big black eyes or they're reptilians or, you know, fill in the blank for the type of alien. Yet that's an easier jump than to say a very advanced group of humans failed either naturally through multiple natural catastrophes or they don't get along because we have evidence for that from the Nuremberg lithograph that a thousand witnesses give or take see literally aerial combat. Uh, Wallace Wagner just wrote a book called Crossing the Crevasse and he you know, I think it's great. He just points out the uh, Roman legion and the, the army that was going to have a, a fight in 75 AD, I think, or BC, and a very high-tech object burns out and crashes between the armies, and they literally decide not to fight that day because they think Zeus or somebody is not happy. And we have, I think, a more telltale story in our more recent memories and our genetic memories of what could be a society that may not even get along with itself. So the reasoning behind the various looks of UFOs and, and, and the people in those crafts, the ones that are not very advanced military, are likely different races of humans that have said, well, we don't want to be this way anymore. We want to be this way. And because of their high-tech genetic uh, information and knowledge that just like we're creating designer babies now that might be better at piano than sports or vice versa or both. I, we're talking about a society that would say, well, if I was shorter, more translucent, all my wave frequency controls for this craft, this Tic Tac will do everything I want. Plus I'll have all my onboard infrared information displays that are through my bigger eyeballs. I'm going to program myself to look this way. And and we see them. And the first assumption, the more easy assumption for my generation, the generation that came before and even now is, well, it, it must be aliens. And I'm not saying there's not aliens. It's just I think that if you take into account the, the total global evidence, which we're only so scratching at, but to get to the point that we understand that the technology was there for if it was a cruise ship of the most advanced humans on Earth and that cruise ship was the only remnants of an ancient worldwide culture that missed some massive natural catastrophe and only hundreds or 6,000 survived from that cruise ship, not all of them would know how to forge metal. Not all of them would know how to program a laptop uh, or they would be aware of it, but they wouldn't know how to do it or they knew right. how to make batteries. And those that yeah. did would be likened unto gods. Hi there. I want to tell you about a podcast I know you're going to love. It's called The Dead Files from Travel Channel. On The Dead Files, Amy Allen and Steve DeShavi investigate the paranormal activity haunting real people and homes across the United States. Amy and Steve come from totally different perspectives when they investigate. Amy's a medium. She sees and speaks to dead people and uses this skill to find out why someone might be haunting a place. Steve is a retired homicide detective. He tackles the case from the other end of the spectrum and uses public records and witness accounts to piece together the history of the haunted location. On every episode, Steve and Amy investigate a different, real haunting to help the family struggling with its effects. On one episode in Falconer, New York, a family keeps waking up with scratches and bruises. They also see a shadow figure lurking around their home. They call Amy and Steve to investigate. Amy uses her strength as a medium to understand who the presence is coming from and why it's so angry. 
Separately, Steve finds out the history of the house from the townspeople and in public records. He finds that several people who lived in this house died, which matches Amy's findings. At the end of the episode, Steve and Amy share their findings and make a recommendation on whether it's safe to stay in the house or time to get out. There are so many crazy stories on the dead files, and what's interesting about Amy and Steve is that they investigate the hauntings from two totally different perspectives. You listen to my podcast because you love tales of the paranormal. But if you want more, listen to The Dead Files wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Um, well, I was going to ask you, I mean, it makes sense if, if 75,000 years ago when a super volcano Toba blew and wiped out, yeah. uh, what, uh, 90% of the population or whatever it was, you know, 3,000 times the energy of Mount St. Helens, this thing. Um, so I was going to ask, how if if what we're seeing is the accumulation of, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of years of, of knowledge that has been preserved, how did it survive super volcanoes and ice ages and, and the like? But if they're, so, are they off planet or? Uh, well, so there's the entry. Oh, so that's a great that's a that's a great question. Um, there's two parts. One, there's all the rock cut ruins that have been found, and of course, the ones that I can say from firsthand accounts that there are definitely rock cut ruins that indicate that they were storehouses for food for people. Um, now, my second book is more on like Sardinia and Malta, the rock cut ruins that you can find where there are massive tunneling systems uh, like in Egypt when they say 90% of it's underground what they really mean is tunnels and i don't mean small tunnels large complexes and including like the city there are multiple cities in turkey so there is extreme evidence not only for what is on the table for the general population to know of underground facilities that have been uh, adapted and used over the long term but then there are other warehouse like underground including like petra like some of the rooms in petra are three hundred twenty thousand plus cubic square feet and these are all rock cut in the ground safe areas i think one of the classic readaptations of underground living for emergency living or group living are what we think of as like the italian or uh french catacombs i'm not specifically saying that those are i'm just saying that when we look at those um beds for the dead they may have actually been beds and if you're a highly advanced society that's just one rabbit hole and then the other one if you're a highly advanced society and you you're terraforming the planet you have high technology understanding waves frequencies and the very construction as a with my background in construction i am fascinated by something that many people have not thought to consider because they were looking for gold they were looking for uh, mummies they were looking for something to make them famous and ruins with stelas and and the rosetta stones and people are not fascinated by the fact that polygonal cymatic constructions 
most of them are still, other than uh, being abandoned and destroyed, they're level. What is the pre-compaction and the soil, the engineering, the metamaterials that are used to pre-compact and set these megalithic structures on? This is a society that definitely went to space. We have those echoing remnants of the Dark Knight satellite. And there are stories that say it's not real, but I think... Um, I think Olaf, my publisher, makes some very good points, and I think a lot of people do, Richard Hoagland, a lot of people make really good points about the complexity of the the not disinformation about the Black Knight satellite. But as it is only one example, let's talk about a modern achievement by uh, live science. I read an article on that they can now create brick, living brick that's made out of bacteria. So you can grow bricks, like red bricks that you see in a fireplace, you can grow them biologically. What if an advanced society sent out satellites, and as we are all excited to find intergalactic, not super dystopian Orwellian, uh, you know, you know, we, we really, I, even as a kid, I was like, why are you, with my love of World War II, I'm like, why on earth are you sending signals out? We can't handle intergalactic fascism right now. You know, you know, we, we assume, <laughs> oh, no, advanced people are all going to be benevolent. Right, right. But here we are like, hey, we're here. This is what we're like. Come and slave us. You know, it's always been a problem for me. But we get these like just recently there was that FM signal that came to Earth. What if a more advanced society knowing uh, nanotechnology, knowing how to use biology as bio, you know, biological switches. We're learning so much more about our own human biology that we're starting to understand more and more that it is almost like we keep describing it in robot terms that, oh, it seems that electrical switching is going on between cells. It looks like nuclear cold fusion is going on at mitochondrial DNA levels. It appears that this negative uh, frequency is required for this salamander to regrow a limb. Let's duplicate it on this frog. Oh, it does it. And we're learning more and more that there seems to be a very exact, not theoretical alchemy chemistry way about our physics, our physiology. And I think that translated for these ancient people into their satellite technology. So I think they sent out stuff and possibly left this planet. They could have populated Mars. They could have populated moons. They could have populated out of the range of where we're at now, which can explain some of uh, the dialogues that some people have had, they said, I'm talking to someone interdimensionally. The first thing that we have to think is if they did send out satellites, we might, as they, if they could, if they were biological, uh, right down to like living bricks. If, and again, we found our first species just this last year that doesn't use oxygen as its base and is not going to breathe it could live in space just fine and what if the satellite systems are going out are saving energy between galactic visits and they're only sending signals after they repair their antenna and simultaneously we're getting those signals or we're thinking that we're getting those signals and we're interpreting it as an alien entity or if they've left this planet and come back we make an assumption that they're going to be honest with us, that the people that have been living, whether we're witnessing UFOs coming from the ocean, coming from Lake Titicaca, all the big uh, UFO reports that come, 
if these people have the technology that they do, mind you, likely our relatives, they don't actually have to tell us, I'm a big Rick and Morty fan. I'm going to out myself right now on your show <laughs> if, if that brings us down an adolescent level. And I, I love Rick and Morty. And I got to tell you, Rick and Morty was my favorite show until Letter Kenny. I'm sorry, but I'm a huge Letter Kenny fan from Canada. It's just huge Letter Kenny fan. But uh, Rick and Morty, the ep, uh, for those interested, uh, Rick as a grandfather takes his son all over the universe. And there's a point where his spaceship battery breaks and his spaceship battery is a multiverse, which is really a mini universe. And he has to fix his battery because he's not getting energy out of this world. Well, to show up in his battery as an alien, he tells his grandson and himself, he puts on uh, alien antenna, you know, like on a spring, they bounce and they have little balls on the top. They're just ridiculous. There's something you would wear on a toddler for a Halloween party. But he's like, all these people got to think we're aliens. And I think it's the same thing where – we make these huge, very innocent assumptions that, well, it was white. It was gray. It had big eyes. They look like reptiles. They're definitely not human. Uh, uh, do they need to tell you that they've been here for millions of years? Oh, no, no. They, they're, they're aliens that have been here for millions of years. Do you, okay. But then now we have to step back and go, why is there not just engineered soil, polygonal construction, and – all these slivers of truths, the oldest religious texts we have on earth are the Hindu Vedas. And they're also a historical record. And Western Western history and archaeology has relied so heavily on biblical uh, historical reference points for finding things. We, we, we have this bizarre bias to go – Oh, yeah. Um, well, you know, those silly people in the East, you know, they they have their funny stories. And, you know, that's not important. You know, serious science starts with the uh, Fertile Crescent and, and the Etruscans and the Greeks and the Romans and then, ta-da, Western society. And it's, and it's such a heartbreaker to the complexity of our past because, again, it's all – now we're talking – I think that super volcano – I think – 75,000 years ago, we fast forward to the Younger Dryas period. The, I think – Everything that went wrong with the world, um, and if we do add in the Sumer or Sumerian kings list, I don't think they didn't know what they were talking about when they have a kings list that says, well, prior to eleven to 13,000 years ago, we had eight kings that ruled 270, you know, depending on the kings list, 246 to 267,000 years, give or take. And there's multiple kings lists, and they all say the same thing. And then post-Younger Dryas, we had these kings, and all their ages start to decrement. And then, very suspiciously, uh, the Old Testament has the identical flood myths, uh, a Noah, and uh, the epics of Gilgamesh. All of that gets translated into biblical scriptures when that is all literally Sumerian ancient texts. But again, it's just a sliver, slivers of the truth. And slivers of technology, we have the cuneiform, uh, we have the Babylonian Plimpton tablet, which is showing uh, trigonometry almost a thousand years before Pythagoras gets credit for it, which is bizarre. And then we have uh, the YBC tablet that has, again, a base 60 map that is spherical in design, and you have ziggurats and pyramids and a number of other structures that are incorporating pi, and pi's first 
ish value is as an Egan value. It's a it's it's for waves and frequencies. And what's endless and never ending? Well, waves and frequencies, energy, sound, and all the constructions we're looking at. When you start, and you're like, whoa. Well, if societies are always kind of at their best later, why again are all the constructions around the Earth? Why why are they always the most advanced when they're at the lowest level? And they're always by people, whether it's the Mayans, the Aztecs, the Olmecs, the Toltecs. We don't have it direct from them, but like the Aztecs, the Mayans, the 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 Greeks, uh, even the Egyptians. They're all like, who who is? Well, the gods were here before us, and the gods built this. And it's pretty clear from the river rock that you stacked on top of the cymatic polygonal construction that I don't think the same two builders were here. It's and 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 the second builder really either had beer thirty every day at noon or it's a completely <laughs> different level of construction. How did the ancient alien crowd uh, absorb and and manage uh, what you're proposing? You know, so Brad Olson and I have gotten to know each other now over a series of interviews. Um, so I'm gonna say that Brad Olson, well, and I'm. I do know Scott Walter. Uh, of course, Scott Walter is a forensic geologist, and he he he's here with me in Minneapolis, St. Paul. He's in the Twin Cities, and so I've gotten to know him personally. Uh, and I only say this because I've been able to speak with Richard. Uh, I've been able to speak with Eric Von Danigan directly. Um, I've been able to discuss these theories with Michael Tellinger, and Brad Olson is the person I can tell you that on air. I can not that this is a full history for everyone, but this is just for uh, engagement purposes. I think that the theories have um, been well; it, they're well received. But as far as I, I've never met Giorgio, I've I've met David Hatcher Childress a couple times and Hugh Newman, but I don't know any of them. I've certainly when I when I was with Brian Forrester a few times, I. I only discuss their work, and so I can't say that I've approached the ancient alien guys directly, other, you know, to to say what you know, what do you think? But now, well, I don't mean Brad the TV Olson. show specifically. I just mean that whole the uh, it's you know it's kind of spawned almost a subculture. Just the the ad the devotees of, uh, I guess, the show and that theory. Yeah, so it's really. Um, it's really interesting. I have a friend, Simon King in uh, Scotland, uh, from Europe, London, uh, Scotland, and all the way to South Africa to uh, here. There are so many people who are like, I have been thinking about this for years. It's what makes the most sense. I can't believe someone's talking about it. I can't believe, you know, so I've had a lot of positive feedback about or encouragement from people who are like, I can't believe someone else is actually, I've been thinking about this for years. It makes so much more sense. And, and I think part of it is the excitement around the idea that why the, why the heck does it have to be aliens? Why does it have to be an interdimensional space traveling crowd that comes here and, uh, well, look, they're cutting up skins of animals and they seem like they have some free time. Let's help them build really big, irrelevant buildings so that later people can be like, what the hell? That just, that there's no premise 
where as a builder, you know, 20 years doing historical remodeling, which is hilarious. You know, like the, the oldest building I've worked on, and I've worked on plenty in the 1800s, late 1800s, but it was just this summer I worked on one built in 1869. And we're talking about constructions that are four, six, eight, twelve, tens of thousands of years of weathering. We don't have a number even with OSL dating on some of these constructions. And as a builder, someone who says, yeah, we can just add nine structural supports that have to end up in the basement that'll support this whole new section of a thing that we're going to tie into this old thing. I look at buildings very um, in, in a detail that as a builder, you know, some people just build things from the ground up. Taking something apart is more complex. You have to be, uh, it, it's a different eye, but it's its similar in that you look at these constructions and you go, why is there river rock on top of a building you can't put, you know, a piece of paper between? Why is there, why, what, who, no, you're telling me the f- same culture just stacked a bunch of rubble. It looks like that rubble was part of that building over there, and that building still looks like it's in, I mean, over and over, archaeological. Like Jennifer Dayo and I, the archaeologist, she's also here in the Twin Cities, and uh, we're planning work at America's Stonehenge, and Dennis Stone has been very generous with that in New Hampshire, and we're planning a trip and a work to South America. Same thing. We're looking at megalithic foundations. And as an archaeologist, it's been really great to have someone around who also is like, Jared, no one's like, archaeologists don't. One, they're worried about not being funded. They're not. They're worried about not being part of the academic, as Carl Lehrberger puts it, the archaeo priests. You know, they're not. You got to stay within the religion. You have to only find things that are supposed to be found, and so it's been a great, exciting, fun uh, push by a lot of people from some. Uh, willing to speak out besides Jennifer, uh, willing to speak out academics to other researchers that are like, yeah, let's get back out in the field. Let's test these new theories. Let's, you know, forensically look at these soils, but also uh, let's have those open dialogues and then let's go further. Let's find out how much of this of the world and this narrative needs to change. But also let's have some realistic timelines on archaeology. I mean, right now, uh, some of the equivalents I have are imagine putting together a ticket to Disney world uh, for 30 years at the ticket counter, but never excavating Disney world if you could. Mm. And, and I think, and, and I believe every chapter of human history is important. I believe spirituality is important, but I do believe that one archeologists need to be paid to fail Two, uh, I don't think it should have taken 99 years for Teotihuacan to be uncovered, and it's not even done. And that's just the main causeway, and it looks very digital and and very high-tech and very plugged into the soil and the engineering. Of course, there's massive megalithic. And then there's all these mud bricks and small constructions and this rebuild. So you have, I think, I know, a way to engage, I think, a renaissance of archaeology that's coming where – you have thousands of archaeologists and people engaged in what could be uncovering a gold rush of knowledge on our not just our past because I think it 
very importantly plays into what are now considered superhuman abilities like Wim Hof and Stieg Severinsen's breathology, where we're we're consciously controlling our immune systems and under scientific conditions, consciously controlling heating ourselves in 20 below zero. These are all things Wim Hof has teaching. I got to meet him and learn that methodology the first time he came to America a couple years ago. I'm a huge practitioner and fan of that. Because we are rediscovering clearly abilities that based on our, in quotes, modern science, say is impossible, yet not only is it possible, it's controllable, it's measurable, it's provable. And that's why it's important for us to not just like haphazardly, you know, dig for a new Victorian statue to stick on a mantle. It's it's important for us to re-engineer why this specific cymatic polygonal block in this order on this hill or on this mountain for this building and what could this building support and how deep is it and what is the complexity and nanostructures of what's compacted and holding this building up and why are these paracas and these elongated skull people which university is picking up the biological genetic research on this and and so we have rabbit holes galore from uh conspiracy to hide the truths to uh a clouding and masking of uh gray states and secret societies that have maybe found pieces of technology and you know, anything's a thing if you've been doing it for a thousand years. So if you want to go, my favorite one is to just tell people, you know, look, if you do yoga on Chernobyl for a thousand years, it's a super spiritual thing. You've been doing yoga on, it's still a melted down Chernobyl factory. It's, 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 so if you want to dance around for the summer solstice on what are really giant complex, uh, polygonal, uh, lentil blocks that are meant for, the base of some former advanced construction and now it's a solstice calendar you can do that but you also have to respect and acknowledge that there is a clear chapters of history where over these disasters we have clear evidence that we were much more advanced and it's clear then that these societies even last six and ten thousand years have been adapting things including places like gobekli tepe um, final question. If the the pilots of these UAPs are our ancestors, in effect, they're not extraterrestrials, does that make disclosure harder or easier, in your estimation? I, I think it makes it harder for them, and that's... I don't think anything's hard for them. I think maybe the experience of going through those multiple catastrophes and clearly whatever is going on with them and how some sex of them sex do not get along that the, that there, the, there, there may not be one group that survived those catastrophes or they disagreed on how to move forward. But that's why in the title of my book, it's not aliens worse. It's us. They're like, why throw in the worse? And because when you really think about a group of people who, what are they supposed to say? Like, look, um, yeah, every cell in your body can be replaced these are giant energy machines. We had a huge network. The whole earth was interconnected. You didn't even need to kill and murder these animals. They were your, they were almost like your anime Pikachu companions. Uh, we managed every frequency and could cure cancer. We, you didn't even have to 
grind up this plant, you know, the very vibrational frequency energy of it, you know, you didn't have to make an essential oil. You could just go through a field of aloe vera and you wouldn't itch and synesthesia, different abilities. Well, well, you're, you're operating in computer and safe mode now. And, you know, we tried to give you a religion uh, about, uh, well, that's Bill's fault. That was 6,000 years ago. And you guys were really kind of, well, sorry, you know, we didn't mean to do that. We didn't, we thought we were trying to get you to uh, connect back to that collective human consciousness. And FYI, we're not going to be back globally or connected the way we designed humanity. It really was meant to have like 80 billion or 60 billion. And that total collective human RAM is the ether that we live in, that the vibrational energy, not the woo woo, but the actual like Karelian photography image of yourself was this much more complex being. But since it's kind of a crap show right now, uh, we, you know, we, we, we tried, we've tried over periods to help you out and yeah, we got a machine in the trunk right now that could cure cancer. But, you know, the last time we tried to help you guys out globally, you know, you, you know, this, you know, this group murdered that group. And then, then we tried to do this and we tried to do that. And so the reality is that we feel really awkward about it, but you know, we're advanced, you're not, you'll get back there, but we can't really help you more than we do. And Oh, by the way, the reason you are where you are is because, you know, our great, great grandmother closed the bunker door and we kind of left a lot of you on the surface. And then, of course, you you and the Denise events and the Neanderthals and everybody mixed and, you know, you guys survived pretty well. We didn't honestly expect to see on the surface, but you guys made it. And, you know, you know what I mean? There's a long list of you guys could have intervened there or, you, you know, it's 2020 hindsight. I think that. The worst part is, is that these are, are could be direct genetic great, uh, great grandparents and they're here. This is still home. It's easy enough to hide. I mean, we miss things left, right and center. And if they were to start at any angle and start explaining why they're where they, they are and we are where we are, it's I don't I don't think anyone's going to be happy unless instantly all problems are solved tomorrow. And we are all, you know, indefinitely living, catastrophically backed up in a collective consciousness. And at the same time, uh, we have clear goals as a global society that allow us to, you know, advance with all of that knowledge without still having these subgroups that are on the planet living like they lived seven, eight hundred, nine hundred medievally thousand years ago burning people at the stake for being witches and doing some terrible, terrible things to each other that I'm not a huge fan of. But in answering that question, I think that it's a really hard thing if we were even ready at our conscious level to to hear all the reasons why they have not done more or done more obvious uh, open evening news things to I don't, I I just don't see how you do it and do it badly when you, you know, you have a lot of people, you know how people are. I think the best example, I I think there's so many beautiful and wonderful and powerful and overall uh, the human race, it's capacity for loving and actually being a collective uh, good uh, people. It, It, we're not fundamentally bad. I don't believe that at all. But when you look at black Friday, and you look at people literally trampling people to buy televisions, uh, what would they do if they were told that they could get in a line at the Great Pyramid or somewhere and the uh, 
fix all your problem machine is back on, but mm. there's only 10. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's a yeah. That's a wonderful illustration. Uh, it's not aliens. Worse, it's us discovering our lost history. Uh, Jared, how do we get a hold of one of these? Well, you could get a signed copy. Which, uh, please, if you're doing it internationally, uh, email me because there I literally sign them for each of you, and I send them out from Minnesota. So there's an extra fee, but that's on notaliens.com. You can find my book on also Amazon. I have a Rockfin channel now, and of course, NotAliens.com has a member area. And if you'd like to meet me, I will be in May 1st at America Stonehenge in New Hampshire, and I will be doing a live lecture, which will also be available on Zoom. If you'd like, you can buy tickets at NotAliens.com or come to New Hampshire, which it's an outdoor 110-acre site, and you can come uh, see a live lecture by me and then walk America Stonehenge May 1st. Wow. Jared, what a delight. What a pleasure meeting you. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Richard. I am, I'm looking forward to talking to you again. This is great. Just great. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. <laughs> <laughs>